This week on Pop Culture Confidential, the politics of funny. Speechwriting for President Obama, Hillary Clinton goes on between two ferns, and humor in the age of Donald Trump. Hi, welcome back to the show. This is Christina Yerling Biru. So the election coverage in the U.S. is, of course, at peak levels right now. The debates have begun, and the candidates have made visits to many outlets of all kinds. Hillary Clinton sat down with comedian Zach Galifianakis on his mock talk show Between Two Ferns. In its first 24 hours, that video on the website Funny or Die was viewed more than 30 million times. Donald Trump's visit to Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show infuriated many. It was heavily criticized in the press and by viewers for being a totally softball, jokey, hair-tussling, and issueless chat. This week, I wanted to talk about the politics of funny. Later, I talked to director Rudolf Herzog. He's the author of the book Dead Funny. It's about humor in the Third Reich and how soft, toothless humor may even have helped Hitler's rise to power. Does Mr. Herzog see any danger in how, for example, Jimmy Fallon handled his interview with Trump? But first, let's talk about writing for President Obama, comedy in the White House, and how presidents and candidates choose certain comedy outlets. David Litt started at the White House in 2011 and served as senior presidential speechwriter for Barack Obama. Mr. Litt was the lead joke writer for the last four White House correspondence dinners and also helped produce viral videos for the Obama administration. In January, David Litt left the White House to join the comedy website Funny or Die as head writer and producer of the comedy site's Washington, D.C. operations. Now, Funny or Die is a top site for comedy, political comedy, and celebrity-driven videos, and it's a top destination for politicians like Obama and Clinton. It's the number one comedy brand on Twitter and Facebook and has a global audience of more than 70 million viewers. Funny or Die founders include Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, and Judd Apatow is also a principal partner. Now, David Litt is also currently working on his book, That Hopey Changey Thing, that will look at his experiences at the White House. Mr. Litt, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Before um, I get into the thick of it, I really have to ask you one thing, and that's working at the White House. Is it more Veep, West Wing, or House of Cards? <laughs> well, it, it's got a lot uh, fewer you know, dramatic, sexy murders than House of Cards, I will say that. <laughs> um, I think some days are Veep and some days are the West Wing. Uh, and you know, the, certainly we had enough West Wing days in there that it was uh, a very special experience and an, enough Veep ones that I have... Uh, Plenty of funny stories to tell in my book. Okay, well, that, I'm looking forward to that. But let's get started. Tell me some background. How did you get the job as a speechwriter for President Obama? So I worked in Ohio, um, at, which is one of the sort of key swing states, as a field organizer in 2008. Um, I had never written a speech before, but I ended up getting a job at a firm called West Wing Writers, which did private sector speechwriting for CEOs or philanthropists and people like that. And then in 2011, um, I was about to leave for Chicago to work on the president's reelection campaign when uh, John Favreau, who at the time was the president's chief speechwriter, said, you know, there's an opening, it's kind of the lowest uh, level speechwriting job at the White House, um, but the president's senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, needs someone to write speeches, and you come pretty well, you know, you have good references, and so are you interested? And I was like, well, yeah, of course I'm interested. 
And, uh, you know, the rest was just that kind of sort of luck and, uh, and timing. And how long did it take you to move up to senior? So I stayed there. I was at the White House for almost five years. And one of the nice things about uh, working at the White House is you, you really do sort of work in dog years. I mean, every one year there, you do so much work. And so I, little by little, I got to take on more responsibility. And uh, after the reelection campaign, I came back to the White House. And I think I was... Uh, I ended up being a senior uh, White House senior presidential speechwriter, I think, in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, 2014, actually. Um, but uh, anyway, it was a good experience. Walk me through a bit a speechwriting session with the president. So, so let's say um, an occasion for a speech. You get a speech, and how does it work? Well, so for the kind of speech that the president's uh, going to be personally involved in, you you usually know about it in advance. Um, let's say a week, two weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes for a big speech, we would get his thoughts beforehand. And one of the nice things, because the president uh, used to be a lawyer, he really thinks in terms of arguments from start to finish. So a lot of the time he would sort of read through something and say, here's how I want to start. And here's the middle. And here's the point I want to make. And here's the end. And our job is kind of just to type furiously and make sure we have that all down. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and you uh, take that and expand it and you do some research and uh, maybe talk to people who, whose stories you want to tell on the speech, you put it all together uh, and then um, it goes to our policy team. So the policy teams are the people who actually know what they're talking about, the experts. And their job is to say, you know, this makes sense, this doesn't. Uh, and then it'll go back to the president the night before and he'll um, revise it. And then the day of the speech, you know, you make those last minute edits. And after that, you send a, a final draft and you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Did, did you study sort of other president's speeches through history um, while you were working with him? Uh, not formally, but you know, my, my bosses at the firm I used to work at mostly worked for Bill Clinton, and so they gave me some insight there. And of course, you know, you read these great presidential speeches, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Ronald Reagan or JFK, and um, every one of those big speeches and those presidents really informs the the sort of conversation that takes place through through time, even. Um, so you are kind of playing with ideas and themes and styles of speaking that lots of other presidents have engaged with before. Can you describe a bit President Obama's speech style? Well, what, what's so interesting about President Obama is um, he he tells stories in a way that, and he loves telling other people's stories. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think really makes him unique. Lots of politicians try to do that, but not a lot of them can do it very naturally. Mm-hmm. And so he's always trying to uh, think about both the, the specifics and the details of what he's doing, what his policies are, but also to expand them so that every speech is not about him, it's about us. It's about who we are as a people and a country. And um, I think that's the the heart of what he's doing. And as a speaker, he also is just, he's very gifted at punctuating his own words. So uh, lots of speakers, you have to have very short, choppy sentences so that they know when to stop. And the president, um, because he's such a gifted orator, he can go for a much longer period of time, but he can build in those little pauses that kind of keep the flow going. Right. Do you have thoughts on the two debating this week, uh, Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, what their styles of speaking? Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, Donald Trump is clearly, uh, he's a performer. That's pretty much how he spent his entire life. Um, and Hillary Clinton is the first to say she's not the kind of gifted speaker that Barack Obama is. Um, but at the same time, um, I think one of the things I learned as a speechwriter is it's not just what you say, it's what you do and who you are. And so for Hillary Clinton, her challenge is going to be to make this not just about the style, but about the substance. And uh, for Donald Trump, you know, obviously, I think he has a, a number of challenges 
Um, but he, he's got the style down pat, I think, uh, when substance and temperament are concerned, he may have some trouble. When when preparing for a debate, or do you know if they work similarly as you would writing a speech? Well, so speeches and debates are very different because speeches your are performances. You're trying to, you, to control every moment. And a debate, uh, if you try to control every moment, it's just never going to work. It's going to backfire on you. Right. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you want to look like you're just going with the flow, even though you've prepared. And so for a debate, it's really thinking about moments and thinking about lines of arguments and themes. So I, I would hope that as Hillary Clinton has prepared for this debate, um, she's not practicing speech after speech after speech, but rather thinking about what's the contrast I want to draw no matter what. What do I want the viewers at home to see? So you've written a lot of funny stuff for President Obama. Um, it, is he genuinely funny? Yeah, he's, he's a very funny guy. And I think that's... Um, it's true, not just when we were writing jokes, but, you know, when he's just backstage talking with the, you know, one of his personal aides or something like that, he's always joking around. He's always, you know, uh, finding finding some humor in things. And I think that's something you kind of need uh, if you have a job that's that stressful. Um, so, yeah, it, one of the I loved the thing he did where he and Jerry Seinfeld got coffee together because I thought that was really his uh, personal style of humor kind of coming through for uh, for everybody watching at home. Come on, let's go. Let's go get some coffee. Well, don't 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 leave the apple though. You gotta if you're gonna have a bite of the apple, you've got to take it. Okay. Could I throw this out? You have a garbage. You have to use the non-presidential garbage. Oh, I see. You worked a lot on the um, correspondence dinners, um, and he actually had a Trump moment in one of those. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, he did. So that was actually uh, I can't take credit for it, but I was in the I had just started at the White House, so I was in the cheap seats that night. Um, but. You know, <laughs> Uh, so Donald Trump had just um, uh, been sort of launched his political career by claiming that President Obama was born in Kenya and not the United States. Um, and in the end, President Obama, just to put the whole thing to bed, or at least so we thought, released his birth certificate. And, uh, and then Donald Trump came to the Correspondence Center and, uh, you know, the president just ripped into him, but in a way that was funny enough that everybody uh, in that room was laughing at Donald Trump. And I, I remember seeing uh, Donald Trump and, uh, you know, he the, the, the shade of red he turned is um, in and of itself was worth, uh, was worth the entire evening. Donald Trump <laughs> is here tonight. Now I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest to ban the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? But, you know, now uh, now they're saying that's why Donald Trump decided to run for president. So uh, I guess jokes have a little bit more of an impact than we thought. Oh. <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's not something that Donald Trump seems to be able to take a joke on himself. <laughs> no, I think it's one of the interesting things that for uh, for presidents, self-deprecating humor, jokes at your own expense are always considered very important. But this entire campaign, Donald Trump loves making fun of other people. Mm -hmm. um, and he's funny in that way. But I haven't heard him. Uh, show any sort of humility. And, and we'll see whether um, voters kind of, uh, you know, respond to that and, uh, you know, 
they decide maybe that's maybe that's indicative of a larger problem. One one of the things you can take credit for is Luther the anger translator that was also on the um association's dinner. Uh, tell me about that and how did that come up? Well, that was one of those fun moments when, uh, so Keegan-Michael Key, who plays Luther, um, I'm a huge fan of his and the show that he did. The president was a big fan of Key and Peel, his show. And so it was one of those moments when we'd always kind of wanted to do something where we would bring this character uh, of the president's anger translator on stage with the president and uh, it just—it was never the right time. And then finally, in 2015, it just everything came together, and it seemed like the right moment. And uh, when we asked Keegan if he'd be interested, of course he was like, "Yeah, absolutely." <laughs> um, and so, but the the crazy thing about something like that is that because it's uh, a, a performance with the president, you don't get the ti- kind of time you would get if it was something in Hollywood. I mean, we had I think 20 or 30 minutes total to rehearse. Oh, really? Yeah, it was not a lot of time at all. So you know, six o'clock on the night of. The president and, and Keegan got together in the White House. They went through it a couple of times. The president couldn't stop laughing, so he was concerned that he might just, you know, uh, lose it in the middle of the actual performance. But now you jump in the motorcade and uh, you got to go to the next place. And so in the end, um, I, I was not sure whether or not the president was going to burst out laughing, but he held it together. I was very impressed. In our fast-changing world, traditions like the White House Correspondents' Dinner are important. I mean, really? What is this dinner? Because despite our differences, we count on the press to shed light on the most important issues of the day. And we can count on Fox News to terrify old white people with some nonsense. Are there things that uh, President Obama said, I, I, I cannot joke about that during your time? Well, for us, you know, there are certain things that um, the president just shouldn't tell jokes about. I mean, one of those is uh, national security issues. Um, you just don't know what's going to happen a week or two weeks from now. So if you make a joke about something and then some tragedy happens in the world, and in retrospect, that joke seems insensitive. Uh, that's what's going to be on the news, and it's um, going to have a real impact. So you have to know where those lines are. Um, and then, of course, there's kind of this, the standard things. I mean, you know, presidents can uh, maybe hint at some things that are a little edgier, but I think things are generally pretty safely PG-13. Um, you know, they're not uh, explicit. Um, what what is his sense of humor? What does he laugh at? Well, I think, you know, I, one of the things that I think uh, President Obama uh, always responded to was anything that kind of got to um, get him out of that moment when everyone's treating him like a persona, not just a person. So I think he always liked, uh, you know, whether it was talking with the staff or hearing an unexpected joke, just something that uh, surprised him. And for, you know, maybe just a tiny fraction of an instant, um, he wasn't, he didn't have to be uh, uh, you know, the president in all capital letters, he could just kind of be a guy joking around. And, uh, you know, obviously, then he goes back to his job. But I think that um, I hope at least that that was a kind of uh, some small sense of stress relief. Right. So why did you decide to go to Funny or Die? And tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so Funny or Die, um, I, I originally met them because they did between two firms an interview with the president in 2014. And uh, that did very well. Millions of people watched it. And it, it was about health care, the uh, president's health care law. And it was this moment when I really understood fully the way that um, comedy and politics and just worthy causes in general could come together. And so that was when I left the White House, I knew I didn't want to keep writing speeches because I really think I had the best speech writing job you could imagine. Um, but I wanted to continue doing something that uh, was funny, but also made some kind of difference. And so Funny or Die's DC office is, that's really what we do. 
Um, we're focused on working with different clients who are, all have something important to say or that they're doing something important, um, but it's hard to get attention, and, and comedy is a way to do it. Um, why does uh, Obama and, and Hillary Clinton now, with her between two ferns, now, why do they choose Funny or Die, would you say? Well, I think there's the first the broader question. I mean, they're choosing comedy because uh, comedy has a lot of traction on the Internet, um, and particularly among young people. It's one of those things that uh, is often shared. It's often liked. People watch it till the end. And that's not true of a traditional interview. Um, Funny or Die, I, I'd like to think it's a combination of two things. I mean, one is just the sheer talent uh, that we have in Los Angeles, um, whether it's Zach Galifianakis and Scott Ackerman, who produced Between Two Ferns, um, or the team of writers that work on all of our videos. But the other thing is it helps to have a presence in, in Washington. So the fact that um, you know we have relationships not just with the Hollywood talent, but with the political talent and with the political campaigns uh, means that everyone it feels a little comfortable. And, you know, obviously these are these are big risks to do something like Between Two Ferns. And so anything that makes people feel uh, a little bit more at ease, um, they're going to do that. Yeah. Um, and talking about the this last one with Hillary Clinton, um, how like prepared is she for that? From what I heard and from what I heard from people on her campaign, um, she was really excited about it. I mean, you know, everybody I know who's close with her always talks about how funny she is, how warm she is. Um, and that doesn't always come across uh, in a big speech on television. And so I think they were excited to put her in a different light so that she could present a different side of herself that um, all of her staff and all of her team feel is there, but sometimes uh, the rest of us don't see as often. Why would you play a commercial for my opponent in the middle of our interview? He paid me in steaks. I'd be afraid to eat them if I were you. It's a good cut of meat. I think it's part of the asshole. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Mrs. Clinton. We should stay in touch. What's the best way to reach you? Email? Do you see politicians uh, more and more um, choosing, either if they want to or don't, th these type of outlets going forward? Yeah, I think that politicians aren't going to really have a choice. I mean, uh, you know, in the same way that politicians in, let's say, the 1960s could choose whether or not they wanted to embrace television or in the 1930s and 40s could choose whether they wanted to embrace radio. But after a certain point, uh, if you choose not to embrace the medium that everyone gets their news and entertainment from, um, you're not going to be a very successful politician. And so I do think that uh, for better and for worse, um, the Internet and sort of these Internet content creators, uh, that's a new way to reach people. And so politicians are going to take advantage of that. Right. I just interviewed an, an author and director named uh, Rudolf Herzog, who, who's written a lot about humor during the Third Reich and, and how toothless humor can be a bit dangerous and such. But how, how are your thoughts on like Trump going on Fallon or how Fallon dealt with it, I'd rather say? Well, so, you know, I would say that in the 2012 campaign, uh, Mitt Romney, our opponent, he was on Jimmy Fallon's show. I certainly didn't have a problem with that. Um, I think that Donald Trump is different. And I think Donald Trump is uh, dangerous to democracy in a way that most, practically all presidential nominees have not been. And I think that when you have him on your, uh, you know, using your platform, and that's true whether you're Jimmy Fallon and it's, or Matt Lauer, the NBC anchor um, at a commander in chief forum, or even if you are, um, you know, if you're the president of Mexico and he's coming uh, to do a bilateral meeting with you, um, you need to find a way to recognize that, yes, he's a nominee, but he is uh, not like other nominees and we can't treat this as normal. I mean, this is a real danger um, to everything that America stands for. And, you know, in politics, we say that a lot, but 
uh, it's not always true. In this case, it is absolutely true. Because that's one of the things I think you guys do well at Funny or Die is that you you joke, but you joke around issues or causes. So it's not just sort of bringing a celebrity out, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the important thing for a lot of what we do, especially at Funny or Die DC, um, is, you know, Funny or Die does plenty of stuff that's just fun. Um, but Funny or Die DC, we really are in the business of having a point of view. Um, we don't, you know, it's not just one uh, specific agenda. We work with different clients and do all sorts of different things. Um, but just about everything we do, we do has a point. And uh, that's not the only way to do comedy, but it certainly, it sharpens it a little bit. And I like to think it makes it a little bit more worthwhile. Right. And I'd like to ask you what you thought of the um, big speeches at the conventions this year. Well, I think, um, you know, in general... Uh, the conventions were a little different. I think you had Donald Trump's speech really appealing to his base, the people who already really like him. Um, I think you had the Democrats trying to expand their coalition a little bit. Um, but I think in some ways the most remarkable speech was uh, the speech by um, Kaiser Khan, the father of a soldier, a Muslim soldier who died in, in Iraq. And I think that's just a reminder that um, politics can feel so scripted uh, you know, speech writing certainly feels can be a part of that. Um, but every so often, uh, something surprises and something breaks through. And it really reminds you uh, why this work is so important in the first place and what a r really powerful rhetorical moment can do. Uh, and that was one of those times. Did you recognize Melania's speech? No, I, I didn't. Um, you know, I think uh, someone found it on Twitter, but it was... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if you guys were no, like, huh. no, I, <laughs> we've I, heard this before. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Uh, Sarah Hurwitz, a friend of mine, writes for the First Lady, and I'm not sure whether or not she recognized it. But I will say, you know, uh, it was it was certainly a shock, I think, to all speechwriters everywhere. And lastly, tell me a little bit about your book. Yeah, so I uh, obviously I've read a lot of books written by people at the White House. Um, I am sure I'm not the only person from this White House. Already lots of people have written books. But I figured this was sort of a fun chance to do a funny, uh, self-deprecating book where the jokes are really at my own expense. And I think that's something I'm lucky enough to do because I was young when I started at the White House. Um, I really did not know what I was doing and had to figure it out as I, as I went. And uh, so I think to a large extent, it's about, um, you know, the way I describe it, I sort of wrote down every time I embarrassed myself in front of President Obama. And uh, for better and for worse, I had enough of those to uh, make a book out of it. So... Uh, I think it'll be fun. It's been fun to write, and I'm looking forward to uh, to when it comes out, which should be next year. Mr. Litt, thank you so much, and I'm very much looking forward to your book. And um, let's see if we can get through this uh, debate week, the coming debates, <laughs> without becoming nervous wrecks. <laughs> let's see how we do. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much to Mr. David Litt. His upcoming book, That Hopey Changey Thing, about his experiences with the Obama administration is coming out very soon. A major discussion in the pop culture zeitgeist this past week is talk show host Jimmy Fallon's handling of his interview with GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump. The interview infuriated many. Was it too light considering Mr. Trump's stand on many issues? How humor has manifested itself during the election. Is it a tool or is it a weapon? An article with author and director Rudolf Herzog, son of director Werner Herzog, caught my attention. Rudolf Herzog is the author of Dead Funny, a book about humor in the Third Reich. 
What was the humor like when Hitler came to power? Does Mr. Herzog see any similarities in the humor now during the U.S. election? How should Jimmy Fallon have interviewed Donald Trump, if at all? I'm honored to be joined by Mr. Rudolf Herzog, award-winning director, producer, and writer. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Before we get into the sort of Fallon, SNL, Trump, and everything that's happening over there, your book and documentary, Dead Funny, what piqued your interest in this subject? Um, well, originally, uh, I had a I had a great aunt who was a bit of a messy. I mean, a house uh, her house was completely devastated with junk which she collected over the years, <laughs> and uh, it was really terrible. Um, and then when she moved out, she was too old to live alone. We had to kind of clear it out, and some unusual stuff surfaced, uh, amongst others, uh, a document which had kind of uh, jokes about Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels on it. And it just seemed from the period, I think it even had a date, like early 40s. And uh, by the way, I, could, I, I, I couldn't really ask her at the time. I think she had dementia or something. Oh. So, so I, you know, it kind of puzzled me why someone would, you know, just type up all these jokes. And, you know, I thought, well, was it? perhaps dangerous to do such a thing at the time. Was it she who had typed them up? Well, I don't know. I, I've got no idea. Um, what were the jokes being told about the Nazis? Well, initially, they were uh, jokes that um, were quite harmless. Um, like there were a lot of jokes about Goering, who was sort of very vain and fat, and people kind of liked him. So there were jokes like he had his uh, medals that he had on his chest. He had those remodeled in rubber, so you wouldn't have to take them off in the bathtub, that, that kind of thing. So he, he got a lot of these kind of jokes, but um, they kind of played on his vanity and fatness mm -hmm. rather than on the fact that he was a mass murderer, if you see what I'm saying. So I think it's almost sort of like endeared people to him. They showed their affection that way. So if we look at it today, and, you know, a lot of these people after the war say, well, we told all these risque jokes and we could have landed in a camp. If you actually look at the jokes, most of them are really, really harmless. And how were they um, taking them, sort of Goering himself? Did they understand that the humor was sort of good for them, if you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think they did have an understanding of that. I think what they understood quite clearly is that... Um, Jokes uh, can be sort of uh, a valve for frustrations, for anger you have. Um, and that's quite useful in a way for a dictator. Because like, if you sort of vent your anger, then it doesn't get more pent up and you start taking to the streets. So you could argue that. It's only towards the end of the, uh, the, the war, when the war was coming home to Germany, that the, the jokes turned very, very bleak. Mm -hmm. uh, and also more offensive, if you will, for the for the from the perspective of the leaders, like um, you know Goering, Goebbels, and Hitler are on a boat, and that there's a storm and the boat sinks. Who is saved? Answer Germany. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So actually wishing death to them. In this case, though, and in many other cases, it's not the populace that actually kills them. It's the storm. So the forces of nature. That's just an aside. But at that time, they were already so anxious to, you know, lose the war and stuff um, that they were cracking down on any dissenter. And so they, you know, the, the very, very few cases where actually people got accosted uh, and some of them even killed because of jokes. 
but not because of jokes, but because of who they were, but using jokes as a pretext, are towards the end of the war. All right. But in the beginning there, when the humor was sort of toothless, um, would you say that it's because one didn't really see what was happening, or was there another reason? Well, uh, maybe one should look at the whole universe of jokes that were around. There were some jokes on the camps right from the beginning. So, uh, you know, people knew about Dachau, for instance, um, and there were jokes about that. So I think the position um, a lot of people of the war generation had after the war in Germany, that they didn't know anything. Uh, there were quite a few jokes around that basically tell you quite the opposite. And they were very, very, very widespread. But what about the jokes amongst the Jewish people? Were they very different? I would say that on balance, they were a lot of a lot bleaker. Mm-hmm. So there was one, for instance, well, this is not quite as bleak, but there's um, in the jungle somewhere in Peru or whatever, they're like two, two people with tropical helmets and guns. Mm-hmm backpacks and they're just walking and all of a sudden they bump into each other and the ones say hey Levy how are you doing and yeah Hirsch it's like incredible to see you listen what what are you up to well I'm actually here to be crocodile hunting you see I make these uh, handbags for women made out of crocodile leather but to save money I'm actually go and hunt them myself so well what are you doing well he says well it's similar I sort of like I've, I make these kind of lion fur fog, uh, rugs. So, but to, to save money, I'm here and I'm like hunting lions. Uh, oh, that's that's really interesting. Do you remember what what happened to our friend Bloom? What did ha- what happened to him? Oh, he became an adventurer. He stayed in Berlin. Oh, so yes. yeah, I see. <laughs> um, that's kind of. But then then there are other jokes like towards the end of the war that are very very bleak. I mm, mean, you mm. know, really dark dark humor. But was there a lot of humor? I mean, did they need the humor? Sort yes, of. Loads. Yeah, loads, yeah. loads. 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 I mean, just you. I mean, you can't even begin. You could write a write a book or just on Jewish humor. Really, I mean, loads of stuff. You have said that the toothless humor here, it, 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 in a way, it helped um, Hitler rise to power. Could you explain a little what you mean? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it helped him rise to power, but it ha- helped consolidate power. But, um, yeah, I think it definitely helped to consolidate it because, as I said, it's like if you, um, if you vent your anger in this way, that's quite kind of harmless. And these were... This was a mass phenomenon. I mean, I, literally everyone was telling these jokes. So it was like really, really widespread. And they thrive, these kind of jokes thrive in dictatorships. So it's like, it's not a coincidence. So people kind of vent their anger, but it doesn't mean that they're then going to take to the streets. I mean, if you vented your anger and you feel better, then you might not uh, vent it in a different way that would be more more harmful to the regime. Do you see sort of a resemblance? I'm not saying that, that Trump is Hitler, but do you see a resemblance in how comedians and TV hosts are tackling Trump? And do you see sort of in, um, that they're doing it in, in the wrong way, that there's a danger in it? Well, first of all, there's a sort of well-known fallacies like, you know, um, Hitler was a vegetarian, therefore all vegetarians must be Hitler, that kind of thing. I mean, there's a sort of well-known fallacy, so you've got to be a bit, bit diff- careful about that one. I think sort of Hitler, that, that's a very, very singular kind of phenomenon. But yes, what we do know and what we can take away from this is that, um, 
you know, uh, very, very toothless sort of gags and stuff like that will, will, I think, just help to endear people to the person rather than, you know, spark criticism. And I think political humor needs to be a bit biting and cutting and, you know, go for the issues. Uh, I think that's really important, uh, especially in a democracy, because, uh, you know, we've, we actually have choice. You know, we can go and vote and, you know, choose. Whereas in a, in a dictatorship, you know, you can tell a joke, can it tell any joke you, you want, but it's like you're not going to have a choice anyway. Right. So, so I think it's like for us, there's no excuse for a comedian, you know, to kind of not tackle the actual issues. Even if the guy would side with Trump, you know, I think it's still, it's still your kind of duty to kind of challenge and because like no one's got a perfect platform or agenda. So, so, so I think that's just, just, just your, your duty. How do you feel about the Jimmy Fallon's treatment of Trump just recently? Did you see it? I did see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't so the whole tussling of the hair. I mean, you know, I wasn't so worried about that. It's just a sort of like the stuff that was before the sort of banter mm -hmm. and just, just like, I mean, it, it wasn't even funny. And it just like, you think sort of like the guy's got this one chance to, to, um, to, uh, you know, tackle this guy. And then he doesn't really make anything of it. And it's just completely lame. Right. So I felt a bit embarrassed for the guy, actually. I sort of like, you know, found it a bit embarrassing, the whole thing. But you have no issue with him inviting him at all to the show. It's just that he did it. Because I know that when Saturday Night Live had Trump a while back, um, this was sort of before one realized that he was even going to be the nominee. But there was a lot of discussion that this was the wrong decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. I, I mean, it's like sort of the whole rise of Trump is very much uh, related to how the media have cottoned on to him and the way they're treating him. And how would you say that is? Uh, as a celebrity, mm -hmm. not as a, not as a politician. So, but I think when the when the we're far down in the realms of politics at the moment, which should be strictly issue related at this point, because like. Uh, in a very short time, like one of these people will be elected and then, you know, that person will actually be, have the power to, uh, you know, uh, to actually implement whatever they, whatever they've said they do. Um, so, so I think it's, it's wrong to treat him as a celebrity at this point. I think in the, initially when there were still like many, many Republican candidates, and so on. It was probably natural to kind of single him out as the oddball and stuff like that. And no one really thought that he'd get anywhere. But now we're far past that. And um, it's just no longer time to treat him as any old celebrity because he ain't. He's a candidate for the, for the presidency. So that's different. So if he does go on Fallon and things, the, the hosts should be talking about the issues, even if they do it in a in a broader way, so to speak. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you've got to go for the issues. What about Hillary? Do you see how people joke about her and with her um, differently? Well, I haven't monitored it that closely. Uh, look, I'm German and... <laughs> no, it's sort of like political humor is... Um, as I said before, it thrives in dictatorships. It doesn't really thrive in democracies for whatever reason. So there's kind of... If you're talking of the man on the street or the woman on the street... I don't think, you know, there are any jokes about these people. 
Uh, or just think of your country, Sweden. Do you know any jokes about your leaders? Uh, I probably don't. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What there is, though, is sort of professional comedians doing political satire, as you as you will, like Fallon or like there are millions of others who do it. So you've kind of got these people who do that, and it's a kind of genre. But as the man in the street in a democracy, you hardly ever get it. I don't know a single joke about Merkel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could come up with some, but I think they if jokes have a very specific function within it, within the dictatorship, and that's why they kind of bubble up and they, you know, you find a lot of them in with, within the people or the population. Yeah, exactly. Um, 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 I just have a few more questions. But speaking of Germany today, I don't, I don't speak German, but what is the stand-up scene today like in terms of political humor? Oh, there's a long tradition of it. Uh, going back to the Weimar Republic and you know that's still very very vibrant Um, there's a sort of prejudice about Germans not having a great sense of humor and I think these people are absolutely right Uh, so that's (laughs) dead on Um, oh really (laughs) what there is what there is actually is that's a sort of um, there's a sort of uh, great tradition of political humor like stand-up political humor, and that actually is great. So that would be my only defense. Are your stand-up comedians today uh, more abiding in their humor um, towards? The yeah, 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 sure. yeah, 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 yeah. I'd say so. Yeah, definitely. No, that that that's that's a must. Which, of course, there are several in the states as well. Of course, um, biting. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there are. Maybe not found, but um, just uh, there's a lot of talk about sort of a, the PC culture today that you're not really. Um, uh, allowed to joke in either way do you think do you see that affecting humor in any way um i don't know i haven't really thought about that probably yes i would say yes um do you see a danger in that 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 it's suppressed that pc means being suppressing a lot of things i don't think things go away because you basically don't allow people to say something they don't go away they might just go malignant if you will Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like weary of, of too much PC-ness, but maybe I shouldn't. You know, it's like if you're joking about someone who's weak, you know, it's, of course that's harmful and hurtful to someone. So it shouldn't really be done. I agree. I don't think that discussion has been taken far enough, the both sides of it. Yeah. That there is a reason that PC can also be um, function um, with a good cause. But I can see, like in 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 the the places where PCness has sort of become so extreme, like has become so such of a big thing, like in Britain, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, this PC culture. So you see all sorts of like things like becoming quite aggressive now. All of a sudden, in that country, it's sort of like slight aggressiveness, and it's sort of I think it's partly. Um, it could be partly because that people have been made to be so PC, you know, and the media is so PC, you know, it's just like a pent up frustration that all of a sudden is coming, you know, you see a lot of aggression all of a sudden. It might be something similar in the US, but this, this is just, 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 just off the top of my head. I've got no way to prove it, but um, like sort of Germans are slightly less PC. They're a bit more direct, um, I would say. I mean, the Germans of today. Right, right. I don't know. It's sort of like slightly a good thing. I think Scandinavians tend to be. But all these are national stereotypes. I really, I've got nothing to prove, prove all this. So 
Sorry, US. I'm, you know, I hope I haven't offended anyone, but I think it's just different cultures, and I'm not sure if it's always right to be 100% PC. Um, I don't know. Other people decide. I've got no view on it. Your family, your father's films are so sharp, but also incredibly funny. What was the humor like for you growing up in your family? Um, yeah, well, thank you for actually saying that because, uh, because that's sort of underappreciated. I think my father would, you know. Oh, really? I uh, think his movies are like, I mean, the reason why they go straight into your heart and brain is because of that underlying humor that he can see. Sorry, you'd be so pleased to hear that. Um, <laughs> I think I think they're like very funny. I think you could make a great comedy. Basically, I, I sort of like partly I make the funny films in the family, you know, sort of like <laughs> more officially. But I think he's like he'd like some of the stuff is kind of hilarious. So I, you know, people take it too dead. He thinks like sort of too deadpan, but I think they're very funny. And he's got a great sense of humor, but not everyone understands it. Maybe it's just the Germans who don't understand it or something. I, but I think, yeah, like, that's good, good to point that out. No, but I mean, I mean the, reason, the reason why they're so good is because he can put things into a, in, into a sort of perspective of how crazy we are at times, <laughs> which is funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I, I think, like, sort of, um, I think if you, if you draw a parallel, I've always been very interested in, in my films and also books and stuff about um, human folly. Sort of, I actually did a book and a film called A Short History of Nuclear Folly, which is sort of about uh, the Cold War and the kind of crazy stuff people did with nuclear weapons. I think they lost about 40 nuclear weapons, couldn't find them anymore. And I haven't found them to this day, so like a jet crashes and they lose a hydrogen bomb in a swamp and they dig for it. They can't find it. So just cover it up again. Uh -huh. So this kind of stuff. So just sort of the extent of, of human folly is just sometimes unbelievable. It's just it's totally stunning. And I think that always has been like something that's fascinated me a lot. So I've tried to kind of meditate on that in quite a few of my films and also like, you know, in that one book. So, But did you have discussions like this at home, sort of growing up with this part of your... No, we kind of speak, talk about football and stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, it's, uh, I don't know. No, I don't think we... No, we just don't, don't have these kind of two intellectual discussions, no. Well, football is good too. Mr. Herzog, thank you so much for taking your time to talk. It was really fascinating. And we'll see what happens in several elections coming up here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much to Rudolf Herzog. His book is Dead Funny, and you can get more information on his documentaries and films and writings on his website. And thanks again to Mr. David Litt. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Karl Borg, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. You can tweet us at podpopculture or visit the website popcultureconfidential.com. Until next time, thanks so much. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! 
Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.